Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some of the most important parts of music are beat and rhythm. Without beats, without rhythm, there's no groove. Without a groove, there's no movement or dancing or really physically getting into the music. Beats and grooves are essential building blocks for so much of modern music. In some songs, the beat is subtle, but it's there. You feel it without someone having to keep it for you. But in other songs, you need a timekeeper, someone to emphasize and augment the beats and the rhythms. For centuries, that job has fallen to drummers and percussionists. But what if a drummer or percussionist isn't available? Or if you want to try something rhythmic but with different sounds, sounds that a drummer can't make? Well, then you might find yourself reaching for a drum machine. Since their introduction in the very early 1980s, drum machines have become an essential part of modern compositions and productions. In fact, it's impossible to imagine the music we have today without such electronic devices. Oh, we still have human drummers. We always will. But drum machines have taken us places that human timekeepers never could. And I'm speaking as someone who plays drums myself. So how did this all come about? Let's investigate. This is the history of machines that keep time for our music. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Billy Idol from 1983 with a rhythm track supplied by a Lindrum, an electronic device invented by Roger Lynn that uses real drum samples in its programming. Its appearance on the song was a pretty radical thing back in the day. Not only did it mean that Billy's drummer could take the day off, but these were brand new sounds and beats that would soon revolutionize so much about music. We'll get to Roger and the Lynn a little bit later on. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this program is all about the history of the drum machine. Boxes that can do much of what a human drummer can, and, well, if I'm honest, more. A drum machine cannot fully replace a human, nor should it. That was never the intention. Well, for most people. Instead, drum machines and software have become yet another sonic tool in the arsenal of the musician and the producer. They're used in everything from raw demos to finished recordings. They've allowed for new textures and subtleties and complexities when it comes to beats. And they've aided in the creation of brand new genres of music. Humans have been playing the drums since at least 5500 BCE. And, and probably a lot longer, since 
What's simpler than banging in time on a rock or a log? But the first archaeological evidence of drums goes back 7,500 years. Basic drums, cylinders with a skin of some sort stretched across the top and off on the bottom, date back centuries and centuries and centuries and millennia. The snare drum arrived in about 1650, and the modern drum kit, multiple drums played by one person with sticks and foot pedals, has its roots in 1909. And if we're going to cover the history of the drum machine, we also have to go way, way back. In fact, a lot further than you might guess. Who was the first person to come up with a machine that could keep time? I'm going to go with Ismail el Jazari, an inventor, mathematician, and engineer from Upper Mesopotamia, who was born in the year 1136. Some also call him the father of robotics. He built some wonderful machines that seemed to have a life of their own. Pumps, clocks, fountains, and something known as automata. And today, we might call automata robots. One of his great creations was unveiled in 1206. It was a boat that featured four humanoid musicians that floated on a lake and used hydraulics, in this case, the transfer of water from one place to another, and was used for entertainment at royal drinking parties. This included a programmable drummer. Wooden pegs were used to program different patterns and rhythms and movements, and it was all a pretty neat trick. That, however, was it for the drum machine for about 725 years. It wasn't until the 1930s when an American composer named Henry Cowell found himself rather bored with the conventions of Western music and went on a search for new sounds. He specifically wanted rhythms that were 100% precise, far more regular than a human could produce. He eventually got hooked up with Russian inventor Leon Theremin, the inventor of that ghostly hands-free electronic device, the Theremin, that was one of the early ancestors of the modern synthesizer. And together, they created something they called the Rhythmicon. It looked like a small organ with 16 keys. The lowest key played one note per beat, and the highest, 16 notes per beat. The beats came from rotating wheels within the body of the Rhythmicon, which broke a beam of light, disrupting a photoelectric current at various intervals, depending on which key you pressed. By pressing multiple keys, you got beats on top of beats. A prototype was unveiled in 1932, followed by a second, which still lives at the Smithsonian Institute. A third unit is on display in a museum somewhere. What did these things sound like? Well, take a listen. Okay, not exactly something you'd groove to, so you can see why the Rhythmicon didn't catch on, but still, you know, this was a start. From there, we move to the Mellotron. You may know this mechanical and tape device as a musical keyboard, and it is, but it began as a drum machine. Its inventor, a guy named Harry Chamberlain, started by recording drum rhythms on the tape loops used by his device. The loops could then be sped up or slowed down. No more than 10 of such machines, known as the Chamberlain Rhythm Mate, were built because Chamberlain moved from drum sounds to other instrument sounds for his next models. Then came the Wurlitzer Corporation. They started manufacturing pipe organs in 1853 and expanded into jukeboxes in the 20th century. In the 1950s, the company got into making electronic organs. To set the organs apart from their competition, Wurlitzer introduced the Sideman, a standalone box that provided rhythms. No tapes this time. This box contained a bunch of vacuum tubes that powered sound-making circuits connected to a clock device. 
You got a bass drum, a snare, some tom-tom sounds, a cymbal, and a few others that could run from 34 beats per minute all the way up to 150. It was expensive. $400 back then or close to $4,000 today, but it was the first rhythm-making device that showed potential. Probably sounds familiar, right? If you ever had a home organ, and they were a big deal for a while, chances are it was equipped with something similar, something perhaps with pre-programmed rhythms like the bossa nova and the foxtrot and the tango and the waltz and swing and mambo and cha-cha and samba. Sometimes there was a button labeled rock and roll, and it sounded something like this. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that rocks, but listen, this was the 1950s. Next up, we have a composer named Raymond Scott. You probably don't know the name, but I'll bet you've heard his music. Hundreds of his works were adapted for old Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoons to soundtrack Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig. Scott was also something of an inventor and interested in new electronic keyboards. He also introduced something called the Rhythm Synthesizer in 1960. That was followed by a drum machine he called Bandito the Bong Artist. This is from around 1963. In the 1960s, vacuum tubes gave way to transistors. Electromechanical rhythm boxes gave away to units that were solid state, totally electronic. This allowed for new devices to run much cooler and fit into much smaller enclosures. Seberg, a competitor to Wurlitzer, brought the selector rhythm to market in 1964. Units started to be introduced into home electric organs, and here's a selection of its sounds. Around the same time Seberg was bringing the selector rhythm to market, a number of Japanese manufacturers were getting into the game. And that included a company called Ace Tone, founded by Ikutaro Kakahashi, who would later go on to found Roland, the electronic music giant. His thing had a rock and roll setting too, and it sounded like this. Now, I should point out that all of these examples featured preset rhythms. You could adjust the speed and sometimes the mix of the sounds, but you couldn't program anything yourself. What you saw is what you got. The first successful pop song to feature a drum machine was Saved by the Bell, a solo record by Robin Gibb, one of the Bee Gees. This was 1969. Then, in 1971, we had Sly and the Family Stone with Family Affair. 
Pre-programmed rhythm sounds could be heard all through the 1970s. Everyone from Pink Floyd to Miles Davis experimented with them. But again, they were all restricted to the programs that came with the machines. You could mix and match and speed them up and slow them down, but you couldn't write your own beats. Programmable drum machines were available, but they were pretty primitive. There was the Echo Computer Rhythm in 1972 and the Paya Programmable Drum Set in 1975. And remember Ace Tone? In 1975, they released the rhythm producer FR-15 that allowed for some fiddling with sounds. And then, in 1978, the company was called Roland by this time, they released the CR-78. The CR stood for CompuRhythm. It sold for $1,000 and came in a wooden box and was the first ever microprocessor-based rhythm machine. It was based on the Intel 8008 chip. It had enough memory to store four different beats didn't sound much different than anything else in the market. There were 14 sounds and 20 presets, but again, it was programmable. And that made it a major step forward in drum machine technology. You have definitely heard a CR-78 in action. It's what we hear in the Phil Collins song, In the Air Tonight, before the real drums kick in. It's here in I Can't Go For That from Hall & Oates. The Roland CR-78 turned up on dozens of hit songs and hundreds of others. And one band that completely embraced the thing was Ultravox for their 1980 album Vienna, largely at the insistence of the band's Canadian drummer. His name was Warren Ken. As a drummer, he was obviously fascinated with rhythm. The CR-78 offered new frontiers, so he started experimenting with one. A big problem was keeping the machine from drifting off its pre-assigned tempo, which was controlled with a knob on the front. Any slight vibration would move that knob, causing the tempo to shift. Exactly the kind of thing that you hope to avoid with a drum machine. So Warren opened it up and started playing with voltage regulators. He jury-rigged a way to keep tempos tight as well as a way to make the bass drum sound fatter. We can hear that work in Vienna, the title track of Ultravox's 1981 album, and a huge hit in the UK and Europe. Let me play you one more song featuring the very important Roland CR-78 programmable drum machine. It underpins this song from Tears for Fears in 1982. The CR-78 and a few similar units were all over music in the early 1980s, especially with techno-pop artists. They can be heard keeping time on songs by Blondie, think of Heart of Glass, Roxy Music, it's in the song Dance Away, Genesis, Peter Gabriel, OMD, and Gary Newman. It had a really good run. If you were ever a Duran Duran fan, you have heard their favorite drum machine, 
It was the KR8 Rhythmer. Others used the Boss DR55. Echo and the Bunnymen relied on a tiny unit called the Korg Mini Pops Jr., which sold for less than 150 bucks. It, after a while, acquired a name. It is the Echo in Echo and the Bunnymen. But once the band got good enough, poor little Echo was ditched in favor of a human drummer, who, by the way, coexisted with another unit called the Roland TR-77. It's at this point that we must leave old-school drum machines and artificial-sounding preset sounds behind. These sounds use something called drum synthesis, which involved combining all sorts of electronic sounds into something that came kind of close to a snare or a bass drum or a hi-hat. Yeah, close, but not close enough. For the next leap, we'll have to meet a drummer in a closet. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the history of the drum machine. If you've come with me so far, you're probably amazed what a complicated story this is. And we're far from done. All the drum machines we've talked about so far sounded really artificial, which, you know, was fine for certain uses. But wouldn't it be nice if drum machines sounded more like, uh, you know, actual drums? This is when we get back to Roger Lynn. Lynn moved away from drum synthesis to drum samples. He wanted drums, damn it. Not something that sounded like a bunch of crickets. In 1980, he released the Lynn LM1 drum computer. It sold for $5,000, the equivalent to more than $20,000 today. But it was the first drum machine to use digital samples of real drums. Plus, it was programmable. Following some suggestions by Steve Piccaro, the keyboardist in the band Toto, he brought in a studio drummer named Art Wood. If you know songs like Dreamweaver by Gary Wright, that's actually Art playing. Everything else on that record is pure synthesizer, but the drums, that's a human, Art Wood. He also played with Tina Turner, James Brown, and Bette Midler. Lynn put Wood in a closet at his house and had him hit the various parts of his real drum kit over and over and over again. One of the snare sounds, for example, was an old Slingerland from the 1930s. Cymbals were a problem, though, because memory was tight. When you hit a cymbal, it rings for a while before it dies out. The chips of the era just couldn't hold that much audio. Closed hi-hats were much better, which is why the first Lins shied away from cymbals in favor of hi-hats. All those sounds were sampled and tweaked and loaded into the machine. A dozen drum sounds were selected. Snare, bass, tom-toms, cowbells, and a few other percussion sounds, and hand claps. They came courtesy of the guys in Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. There were also controls that allowed the operator to change the pitch of each sound. And that alone opened up all kinds of sonic possibilities. Lynn also added a control that allowed the operator to delay a note by a fraction of a second, which mimicked how human drummers might play with a swing or shuffle beat. And through some accidental ghosts in the machine, the LM1 introduced the concept of quantization, where a beat is automatically corrected to be in perfect time. Word got around, and demand far exceeded supply, and only 525 of these things were built. Another cheaper and more stable model, called the Lindrum, was released in 1982. Studio drummers started to buy them out of self-preservation. 
If they turned up to a session and the artist and producer wanted a drum machine sound, then the drummer had to be a whiz at programming one. And so many people wanted to use a Lin unit. Fleetwood Mac, Depeche Mode, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, ABC, Devo. Most of the drum sounds on Prince's Purple Rain were a Lin, and by extension, Art Wood. So technically, Art Wood has appeared on thousands of recordings. Here, for example, this is Art playing with the Human League without actually having to play with the Human League. By the time Roger Lynn and his machine started gaining popularity, other manufacturers were ramping up. A company called Sequential Circuits released a unit called Drum Tracks. Emu Systems had the Drumulator. There was Yamaha's RX-11, the Oberheim DMX, and they were all good in their own way. But then there was the Roland TR-8 808 Rhythm Composer. Like the Lin, it was programmable, but it generated synthetic sounds. It did not use samples. The TR actually stands for Transistor Rhythm. What set these sounds apart was that they were really kind of weird, especially the bass drum, which could be set to really, really boom. That, in part, was created by using faulty transistors on purpose within the circuitry. They delivered a wonky, sizzly, synthetic sound that was pretty cool and spacey and futuristic. Even the cowbell and the handclap settings, which hardly sounded real, had their own appeal. Let's hear some of these sounds, starting with a basic bass drum line. which led to beats like this. And this. Which you may recognize from this, a guy called Gerald and Voodoo Ray. TR-808 was initially a commercial flop. Early adopters who bought a unit didn't think it was nearly as good as a Lin machine, so they traded them or sold them off. That made them accessible to other artists, most notably young people, getting into hip-hop, dance music, and electronic music. A unit that originally cost over $1,200 in 1980 could be had for as little as $100 or $200 just a few years later. The owners of these secondhand machines realized that the 808 was the first drum machine that could be programmed to carry through an entire song, completely with rolls and fills. The TR-808 grew into a cult thing, and eventually the 808 was used on more hit records than any other drum machine ever. It was one of the foundational sounds of hip-hop and any kind of post-disco dance music, British rave, techno, house, acid, pop. The band 808 State is named after it. Kanye West's 808 and Heartbreak album, named after the TR-808. It's been the subject of books and documentaries, and I've heard the 808 referred to as the Stratocaster of hip-hop and dance music. It's everywhere. The 808 is all over the first Beastie Boys album. Producer Rick Rubin fattened up the sound and laid it underneath songs like this.
The Roland TR-808 was followed by the TR-909. Its party trick was that it was the first drum machine to use MIDI, Musical Instrument Digital Interface. That meant you could string it together with other electronic devices so they could talk to each other using a common digital language. One musician could simultaneously control multiple instruments, extending their capabilities into unknown spheres. Moby remains a real fan. But the 909 was a commercial failure as well. Yet it had an amazing impact on how music was composed and produced. When we come back, the story behind one of the most famous drum machine-based songs of all time. Before we wrap up this history of drum machines, here's the story of perhaps the most famous of all sounds based on one of these units. In 1982, New Order was looking for a way to end their shows. They hated doing encores and would rather spend the time after their set in the dressing room having a few drinks. So drummer Stephen Morris came up with an idea. He'd recently acquired an Oberheim DMX drum machine. He sampled himself playing the bass drum on his kit and then loaded that sound into the DMX. He then programmed a pattern designed to be triggered when the band left the stage. The thinking was that the audience could amuse themselves by dancing to beats from the machine while the band started the backstage party. But then Stephen had an idea. He built a sequencer that could be connected to the band's new sampler, a keyboard called an emulator. They sampled a choral effect from a Kraftwerk song called Uranium and wrote a bass line using another keyboard called a Moog Source. An engineer named Martin Usher was brought in and he wrote some code that got all the different devices talking to each other. Meanwhile, Jillian Gilbert, the keyboardist, wrote out the entire sequence by hand on paper. However, she accidentally added an extra rest in her notation, which made her program slightly out of time with everything else. But because that added some extra tension to the arrangement, New Order left it alone and left that mistake in. The result was a song called Blue Monday, and it would go on to become the biggest selling 12-inch in the history of the universe. And none of it would have been possible without drum machine technology. The one thing that we did not mention here was electronic drums. These are pads that you actually hit with a stick. That impact can be set to trigger all kinds of sounds. For example, if you think back to what sounds like a brittle snare drum in Blue Monday, that's actually Stephen Morris physically hitting pads connected to an SY1 syncussion unit. So you can call that a real-time drum synthesizer. There were other such units. Syndrums, which were made by a company called Pollard, Simmons, Synair, and PPG and they might deserve a show of their own someday. Standalone drums aren't as much of a thing as they used to be. Instead, these drum emulators are emulated themselves via software in programs like Pro Tools, Logic, and GarageBand. You can get the same vintage sounds and many others by purchasing programs that you just load into your music-making software. There are, however, still purists who want the original sounds, which you gotta admit still sound pretty cool. There are hundreds of more shows like this available as podcasts. All you have to do is go to your favorite podcast delivery system and grab as many as you want. They're all free. If you want to contact me, there's Twitter or X or whatever, Facebook and Instagram. Fastest service can be achieved through email through alan at alancross.ca. Don't forget about my always updated website, a journal of musical things.com. And then there's the free daily newsletter that goes with it. So you never, ever get behind when it comes to music news and information. 
Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 